This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 17, Episode 4. This is Writing Excuses. The gun on the mantle is actually a fish. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Howard. I'm Kayla. I'm Sandra. And I'm Meg. (laughs) And I was late with my line about who I am. Okay, last episode, uh, we talked about foreshadowing, and I described it as creating the thread which makes a surprise inevitable. This episode, we're talking about red herrings. This is where we create the thread which makes the inevitable surprising. As we said last week, aim for inevitable first and then build the surprise second. Because if you fail at inevitable, you've got a deus ex machina and we're disappointed and bewildered and and we feel like we've been lied to. Um, if you fail at surprise, we're like, oh, I, I saw that coming. Which yeah, I would on- much rather have I would much rather have the reader feel like they're smarter than me than feel like they're better than me. (laughs) (laughs) Very true. Very, very true. So red herrings. Let's let's talk some good examples of them. Where do you where have you seen them done really well? Fish market. I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) You just really went for that one, Meg. (laughs) (laughs) Straight in. The red herring is that I was going to give a serious answer. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's useful to look at at, uh, shows or books that have a deliberate twist to them, where, uh, and and a frequently used example of this is The Sixth Sense, you know, where um, you have this twist that uh, I can see the kid sees dead people. Oh, our protagonist is dead, is the big twist at the end. And the surprise, and yet it is the surprise that makes you want to go back and rewatch the whole movie and see how absolutely clearly inevitable it was. It was absolutely there. So much there that there are many people who saw it coming from scene one. You know, some people were not surprised. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and so you you go into the movie and you deconstruct and say, where, how did they mislead? the majority of the audience into believing that Bruce Willis was alive and interacting with the world. And they put him in scene after scene after scene where there's another human in the scene who our brains fill in the blanks because they are sitting opposite each other in chairs. We assume that there was a part where Bruce Willis knocked on the door and came in and was welcomed and invited to sit down. But we don't see any of that. And so the show uses the medium and the, the automatic back and fill that the medium asks of the audience to get us to back and fill something that absolutely wasn't there. And so the show actually is getting the audience to create their own red herrings, which is mm-hmm. kind of cool and interesting thing that that particular show does. So that that's one of my examples. And, and it's fascinating to go through and figure out where where was I misled? Kayla. 
Yeah, I think that's a really great example, particularly leaning into the strengths of your medium to accomplish that. Um, I think one for books was Harry Potter, the first one. I think that was one of the best, like, at least, you know, I mean, admittedly, I was young when I read it, but I still think it holds up really well the way that they make you think that Snape is the one who's trying to steal the Sorcerer's Stone. Because by all means, it seems completely reasonable. Uh, Snape was the one who was muttering a curse when Harry's broom bucks around and he nearly falls off. Snape seems to hate Harry for absolutely no reason. So you're like, yep, I believe he's a bad guy. <laughs> um, and like, there's, and then there's the cut on his leg after everybody runs the troll in the dungeon. So we have pieces of evidence that imply that it is him. But when we find out it's Quirrell, we also suddenly remember that Quirrell was in all of those scenes that Snape was muttering the counter curse. Quill got knocked over by Hermione's fire um, stuff, and that broke his concentration for the curse. Um, that Quirrell had run to the dungeon, Snape had him off, and they like were there with Fluffy. You know, like like they you, we forgot Quirrell was there. Um, because we were wrapped up with a very good and reasonable explanation of Snape. Yeah. Um, the, and the, oh, sorry. I was just gonna. I was just gonna say what you've described here is a pattern that has a tool built right into it, which is anytime you are laying a piece of foreshadowing, grab a fish and drop a fish next to it. Okay. <laughs> you want to have a red herring in there with your foreshadowing, so that. So the audience can be can be misled, right? And we can also take a take a learn things from stage magicians, where there's there's the patter and the hands that are waving because he is moving something from the table in front of him into his pocket, and he does this big gesture with his opposite hand and tells a joke because he knows that the audience can only pay attention to a limited number of things at a time. Um, and then there's also that, that video with the passing the basketballs and the gorilla that dances through the middle of it. And nobody sees the gorilla because we're so busy paying attention to the ball. And you can do these same things in what you are creating. You can teach them and teach your audience, okay, pay attention to the ball. Your job is to count how many times the ball is passed when Truthfully, you're hiding a gorilla in plain sight. Maybe. Yeah, so the idea is to give your red herrings uh, story significance while making the actual foreshadowing mm -hmm. something that's just, you know, happening to the side or like a small joke in the conversation where we're talking about the big important thing. Um, a show that I think does this very well is The Newsroom, written by Aaron Sorkin. Um, it has some of my favorite examples of long setup and payoffs for a joke in an episode. And I'm going to tell you one that just happens now. Um, and it, you know, the, the payoff won't be as good because I'm telling, you know, you the beginning, the ending right after. Go another. ahead. We need to imagine there's Don't 40 minutes it. in between, but there's a, a news acre and he's complaining to his, uh, wardrobe assistant that is there something wrong with the pants you give me because I keep trying to put them on and both my legs end up in one side and the assistant's like you can't put your pants on and you think there's something wrong with the pants mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and the the a story of this episode is someone is here to do a hatchet job news article about the news agency and he used to date the main producer of the show before she 
dated the main character, the news anchor. And so the reporter and the producer are having a huge argument and she is standing up for the news anchor. And she's like, you don't understand. He is a great man. I mean, he struggles with things, but he's a great man. And as she says struggles with things, we see him hop into scene trying to put on his <laughs> pants and then he falls over in the background. And it's it's been a half hour since we mentioned the pants, but it's, it just comes back at like the best moment. So check out that The is, Newsroom by Aaron Sorkin. Yeah, that's as a professional humorist, that sort of thing is something that I use a lot. Um, Sandra mentioned stage magic in the second edition of uh, Extreme Dungeon Mastery. Um, we call attention to the way in which surprise for a magician, you know, the deception with a magician, there should never be a reveal. They have red herringed, but they are never going to tell you how they performed the trick. Whereas as storytellers, the deception needs to be gentler. It can't be, as we mentioned last week, it can't be uh, animating Hans having a loving, kind, <laughs> totally genuine expression of love while the music cues and the lighting all say, this is a good boy for her to be interested in when in fact he's just making a play for the kingdom. Um, that's deceptive. Um, we want our reveal for storytellers the, the big payoff is in the reveal for uh, audiences of magicians. The big payoff is um, I was deceived and I don't know how. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I used, I, I used the example. Um, we illustrated the example in, in the book of uh, the trick knife. You know, if the magician says, aha, see, this is where I switched out the actual knife for a knife with a collapsing blade. You didn't see it, though, did you? But yeah, knife just has a collapsing blade. Stab, stab, stab. Big deal. In the movie Knives Out, we are told that there is a knife that has a collapsing blade. And in the very last scene, someone attempts to commit a murder with it. And we find out that they've grabbed the wrong knife. And it is delightful. Mm -hmm. because we get to see the trick knife and um, knives out is a master class. I just realized. Oh, go ahead. I said knives out is a master class in uh, red herrings and guns on the walls. And, you know, like seriously pick it apart. So very, very many. Um, What's the easiest choice you can make window instead of middle seat, picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket, outsourcing business tasks you hate. What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. And on the subject of red herrings, I have the book of the week. It is And Then There Were None by Agatha Christie. And I picked this one because 
it is arguably the place in which red herring cemented itself in the colloquial, the jargon for a distraction. Um, the, uh, the character um, uh, Vera uh, scolds everybody for being distracted because in the verse that applies to uh, one of the previous characters' deaths, a red herring swallowed one and then there were three. And she's saying, a red herring swallowed one, that clearly means... Armstrong was not dead. There was a there was a distraction here, um, and and then there were and then there were none. Is a a fine book to read. It's short, and it's very tightly very tightly woven. In my eighth grade English class, I disagreed with the ending, and I had I remember meeting with my teacher afterwards because she was talking about like it was inevitable. This is the only way it could end, and I'm like. Challenge accepted. And I wrote a different ending as to who the murderer was and what they were doing. And I pointed out, you know, this, it could have happened this way. And she's like, okay, Megan, it's not that okay. deep, but good job. <laughs> no, but here's, here's the thing. And this is, I can't remember where I got this. I could be speaking out of class, but uh, I have heard said that Agatha Christie often wrote these things three quarters of the way through without knowing who the murderer was herself and then went back and made sure that the, uh, the foreshadows and the red herrings all aligned and she had a proper ending in place, which means if you, you know, depending on how much of the book you let yourself rewrite. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's fascinating. The movie clue, uh, I, I don't know what year it was, but it's the Tim Curry movie clue which did an experiment that they actually filmed three different endings with three different murderers. And then they sent different endings to different theaters. <laughs> and so theoretically you could go see the movie in multiple different theaters and get to see the three endings. Now in the age of streaming, they just play all three endings one after each other. Yeah, they've, they've concatenated the endings and they've, they've given the third one. They're saying, but this is what really happened. Right. But the whole thing is written so that there are clues to support every single ending, which is valuable as a writer to deconstruct because the vital clue for one ending is a red herring for a different ending. And, and so you can pull that apart. So the, the writer strike of 2007 hit a lot of shows very hard. And one of the shows that hit quite hard was the procedural bones, which yes. is one of my favorite mm. shows of all time. <sighs> And there is a recurring murderer in the third season, which is rare for this show. Normally we, we get our guy every time they show up. Um, but there is a recurring murderer that is a cannibalistic cultist that eats people's faces. And like the Sith, there's always a master and an apprentice. And at the very end of the season, it is revealed that someone on our team is the apprentice of the murderer. Yeah. Even though throughout about 90% of the season, this person has been making discovery after discovery, helping us track down the murderer. And so you try and rewatch that season and there is no clear moment when this character betrays us until you can see in the writer's room that, well, or lack of a writer's room. I'm not entirely sure how 
the writer's strike wrapped up the season, but they had to <laughs> cut the season early. And about two episodes from the end, this, this character starts actively working against us. Um, but it's clear to see that that was a, a decision made much later on in the season and it doesn't logically follow. And so what we have earlier aren't red herrings. It's just unintentional storytelling before we knew where we were going. Because you can't it was the writer's, it was the writer's phone booth, not room, because yeah. phoning it in, because yeah. <laughs> that joke would have played better if I'd told it sooner. Um, what other tools do we have for creating satisfying red herrings in order to make the inevitable surprising? I think one of the, the things that you have, you have to use this carefully, but ambiguity is a very helpful tool when depicting things because ambiguity it's or, or almost an objectivity of like, this is what happened. You know, these are the facts of what happened, but a lot of storytelling is contextualizing what has happened. So if you can show what happened and either just leave it there as if it's not important or touch on the, like we use your, your context to put only one part of it in focus without obscuring the view of the rest of what happened. Um, you can use that ambiguity to your advantage to get people to look at the wrong thing or to pay attention to the wrong thing. That still makes sense, but you haven't hidden anything from them. You're just leaving it ambiguous or uncommented yeah. on. One of the things that I try to do is take take the character who is the most the most charismatic, the character that everybody likes the most, and have that person look at the wrong thing. Mm. The mm. right thing is someplace else, but the person we like is looking at the wrong thing. Now, obviously, you can't do this all the time, or you're just like, okay, <laughs> check everything in the room that he didn't look at. That's that's a possible clue. That list of things will thread to the answer. Um, but uh, yeah, the audience is going to follow. They're going to follow the funny. They're going to follow the you know the cool turns of phrase. The when I write, I try and put the funny around around the wrong thing enough of the time that uh, that that people mislead themselves. Mm hmm. The power of uh, misdirection, like yep. we're talking about with the magician stuff, where you're shining the context over here. That doesn't mean that you turned out the lights on everything else and you're deceiving them, but you're like, hey, look at this cool thing. And I love the using a trusted, likable character to do that, where you're like, oh, I love this character. I, I appreciate this character, or even I trust this character. They're really smart. And then you're like, oh, but they didn't have all of the picture either. They didn't tell me that this thing was the answer, but I thought it was. A quick set of tools, um, depending on what medium you're working in. If you are in a prose medium, you can use synonyms and homonyms to carefully, you know, that there's a, that's a potential tool depending on what you're writing. Um, auditory, then you want the things that sound the same, but mean different things. And then in visual mediums, you can do visual mix, mix direction again. So it's, it's all uh, just as another set of tools to think about. Meg? And I want to kind of wrap this up by saying it's okay if the audience guesses what's coming, if you can deliver on it in a very enticing way. And uh, that Chekhov's Cauldron of Hot Lead is coming back 
because <laughs> I had just assumed they were going to put on some red and orange lights when it's time to spill it. Cause we're in a small theater. We're inside. They set off fireworks inside the <gasps> building. There was just a fountain of real life sparks and fire on the stage. And so I knew this scene was coming and just didn't care. And then they delivered with an actual explosion. And I was like, <gasps> I was wrong. I, I, oh my gosh. So that was great. That was wonderful. It's the 1812 overture done by the <laughs> high school in which the sheriff is backstage firing his shotgun into a bucket. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Sandra, I think you've got this week's homework. We could keep talking and talking and talking about this. Yeah. We need to give people homework. Yeah. The homework is, uh, this is a paired episode with last week's episode. So do the reverse of last week's homework. Instead of finding a thing in the beginning and writing a scene at the end, find something that is important at the end and find a place early where you can rewrite the scene to put that on the mantle in some way. And, and then maybe take some of the tricks and tools to magician misdirect so that it's there, but it is not the focus of attention. So. Outstanding. This has been writing excuses. You are out of excuses. Now go write. Writing excuses is a dragon steel production. Your hosts for this episode were Howard Taylor, Kayla Rivera, Sandra Taylor, and Megan Lloyd. This episode was engineered by Marshall Carr Jr. and mastered by Alex Jackson. The liner notes and transcripts for this episode are available at writingexcuses.com. To learn more about us, visit patreon.com slash writingexcuses. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like... Do you want to do a one-on-one -on -one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus. 